I'm Morgan St. James. This is Writer's Tricks of the Trade, a show dedicated to sharing writing tips and techniques. Tonight, Eric James Miller and I have a special guest, John D'Amour. John's the author of The Boss Always Sits in the Back. I've been told to emphasize always. John decided to self-publish his book rather than going uh, the route of obtaining an agent and publisher, and he'll share his reasons and how he propelled it into a bestseller. Okay, well, welcome, John. Um, Thank you. Let me tell our let me let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. As I understand it, by your early twenties, you were traveling cross country as a session musician. And that's right around the time the incidents that make your book such great reading occurred. Um, I know that. But then while touring during the 70s, you were also a feature writer for New Jersey's third largest newspaper, the Herald News. And uh, you kind of enjoyed the best of both worlds there, right? Playing rock and roll and writing? Yep. But then in 1985, you said, uh, okay, goodbye, it's been a slice music business and got a job in the corporate world. What kind of job was it? Well, you know, coming uh, coming out of the music business uh, around, I think that must have been around 1985 or so, like you said, uh, not really having any college degree. I did do a couple of college courses here and there, but, you know, you come out of the music world and on your resume it literally shows that, from the time you were 18 until uh, 32-ish, you were a rock and roller. So you're not really qualified to do anything much <laughs> uh, uh work in a record store or something, or maybe at uh, the Guitar Center or something like that. But uh, I lucked into a job at that point, and I know it's going to sound crazy, uh, I lucked into a job uh, selling trucks. Uh, not that I knew anything about trucks, but um, I always had a, uh, an ability for sales uh, and the ability to speak in front of people, which I guess came from being a musician and being able to stand up in front of people. And uh, like I said, I really didn't know a heck of a lot about trucks. And uh, within 18 months of taking on that job, and believe me, the first three or four months of that job, I was positive I was going to get fired every day for not selling a thing. But then, uh, like most things, it clicked. And uh, within a year and a half, I became uh, the number one uh, truck salesman for that particular kind of truck uh, that it was in the Northeast region. And uh, I stuck. I stayed in that industry for a few more years until about 1990, uh, and that's when I got into the uh, payroll-deducted life insurance uh, world with MetLife and Mutual of New York and some other major corporations uh, selling selling large life insurance uh, programs to groups of 5,000 lives or more. And yeah, that, but then in 1990... John, in 1999, you began to write your memoir about an exciting, adventurous, deadly time in your youth when you actually unwittingly became part of a mob scam that changed gambling laws in Nevada for everywhere, forever and 
as a matter of fact, everywhere else in America. So now I'm going to ask you to briefly tell us what happened in 1999 that inspired you to go from thinking about it to actually beginning to write? Well, I had actually known for more than two decades that I had this desire and ability to write. And it's just that New Jersey wasn't the place to do it, which was where I had lived and grown up and lived at that point. Uh, so in 1999, I drove out to L.A. and I stayed there. And as soon as I got to L.A., I didn't stop writing until the manuscript and the screenplay for The Boss Always Sits in the Back were finished. Having them in hand, it was time to decide, what do I do next? Uh, should I query agents, hope a publisher would snap it up, and then maybe get it published within a few years, or do what many were starting to do at that time and become my own publisher? Uh, that's the route I chose, but it certainly didn't happen overnight. Uh, after completing the manuscript, I quickly fell into writing screen uh, into screenwriting as an occupation uh, and I was contracted by several studios and production companies as a script doctor. Uh, this was a great occupation to have until the writer's strike hit several years ago. At that point I then decided I needed to find another way to supplement my income. So uh, more than a few people who I respected told me to get the manuscript for the boss out and get it published. It was a great story waiting to be told, and I don't have to tell you that America still has a romantic fascination with all good stories about the mob and the mafia. Yeah, it seems like more and more authors have gone to self-publishing. In fact, some of the big names have also entered the arena, and um, with that happening, it doesn't have the stigma it used to have. Um, your book is a great example of good writing and a product that doesn't look self-published. You had contacts in the entertainment business, though, so um, what made you decide to self-publish? Well, you know, you hit on two very important details there, Morgan. A lot of people have self-published uh, their books, and many more want to. One thing we all have to do is accept some realities. One may have a great story, but not everyone is a great writer. Conversely, one may be a good writer, but they don't have an entertaining or exciting story to be written. And if you're going to self-publish, not just what's on the pages of the book, but it's the overall quality of the product. And that's the second detail you brought up. I did a lot of research before I had the boss turned into a book, which I'll go into further into the show. But one of the first things I did before starting the self-publishing process was simply going to the best bookstores around to see the quality of the books in my genre and how they were put together. Sometimes it's the simplest of things to consider that can earn you a lot of money in the end. To touch on your other topics, of my contacts in the entertainment business and why did I decide to self-publish, one is directly connected to the other. Yes, I have a decent number of friends and contacts in the film, music, and literary industries, but there's one fact I found to be true while seeking an agent in the literary field. And I had, uh, oh, I'm sorry, because, uh, because I was in my 50s when I began to think of getting the book published, I had no credibility as an author. 
the more notable agents and agencies didn't want to take me on because I'd be too hard to sell. There was too great of an unknown factor for them when it came to the quality of my writing. They also want someone they can get a good 20-plus year career out of. With me, it might only be the one book, hardly worth their time and effort. I, I had hit what the industry calls the gray wall. I was in my 50s and trying to break into a field I should have been in by, uh, by the time I was in my 20s or at least my early 30s. And, the, and I should have already achieved a level of literary success by my 40s. So did you ever think about giving up on the book? Uh, for most writers, that would have stopped them. But for me, it meant I just had to find a way to go around that wall, to climb it or to go through it. Uh, though many of my entertainment industry friends were helpful in coming out to promote it once I published it, only one, a best-selling author, was able to get me to her agent. Unfortunately, he liked it, and I signed with him, but he was inundated with other writers that already had deals or those whose products were easier to sell. He didn't have the time needed to get the boss into the right hands, so after a year or so, we went our separate ways. But that's the business, and every writer has to learn to accept that. Having a high-profile New York City literary agent doesn't mean you'll get a publishing deal. And a great uh, it was absolutely a great education and an adventure for me. And it will be for many other authors, I'm sure. Huh. Well, with so much motivation, but then unexpectedly hitting, I think that's a great way to put it. It is an industry term, the gray wall. Um, you armed yourself with a plan to publish yourself. You armed yourself with a plan to self-publish your book. But what inspired the title, The Boss Always? <laughs> See, he's got uh, us both emphasizing it, Eric. <laughs> he yeah, did a great uh, job on that. Uh, the title comes from something the boss of uh, North Jersey actually said to an undercover New Jersey State Police detective that was taping the boss when he was asked if he wanted to sit in the front seat of a caddy they were going for uh, a ride in. Uh, because of my years of working in, record in a recording studio, the boss asked if I would analyze the tape to see if any sections of it were edited in any fashion. When I heard him say those words, I knew that would be the title for the book I would eventually write. Yeah, and it's a great title, John. It really is. It's a grabber. Um, so, okay, so at this point you decided to self-publish the book once you had it underway. And um, there are various ways to self-publish. Uh, rather than using a packaging company, I understand you pretty much did it yourself, as I have with the books I've self-published, uh, based on your experience, could you tell our listeners what hats an author has to wear during and after self-publishing their book if they uh, aren't using a company that holds their hand and does the whole thing? Exactly. And, you know, even if they do have a company that holds their hand, they still need to know a lot because those companies don't always, aren't always looking out for your best interest. But 
But you've asked a great question, Morgan, and I can explain this exact situation. In uh, I, I, I speak at colleges, uh, schools. I do seminars on creative writing and self-publishing, so I, I could answer this uh, pretty straightforward. Let me start by saying time and money are your two biggest factors. If you can't dedicate these two things into making and selling your book to be the best it can be, don't do it. As far as time, you must get a calendar and set specific goals for your project over the next 12 months. And that's after your entire manuscript is written and edited to the point of knowing it's ready to go to print. From this point, it will take at least four to six months before getting your book printed and in your hands, which you then need to get out to independent bookstores and wholesalers. There are so many first steps that need to take place, but if you're going to do it alone, you need to know these things before printing your book. Every step I discuss after this point is going to cost money, the other big factor. Like any business, you can't make money if you don't have it to spend on your own product. If you cut corners and make a poor or even mediocre quality product, no one is going to want to buy it. Copywriting your book is paramount. Even if you've copyrighted various drafts of it, when you truly believe it needs no more editing, and, should, and, and one should never believe that, uh, copyright the version that will eventually be sent to the printer. How do you do that? It's real simple. Go to libraryofcongress.com, oh, sorry, .gov, <laughs> libraryofcongress.gov, and either do it online or download a copyright form and do it the old-fashioned way. Okay, well then, after you've got it copyrighted, what comes what comes next? Who who puts the book together? Well, <clears throat> then you'll need to find a reputable artist to work on the book's cover. We're not just talking about the front cover, but the back and the spine. And if you're planning on a hardcover version with a dust jacket. You then have two inside flaps, and it all has to be designed to sell the story inside the book and formatted for print. And none of this happens overnight. You'll be dealing with the artwork for several weeks. I worked with Reflex Graphics, who, as you can see from the cover of the book, did a phenomenal job. They did the artwork and formatting for the hardcover and paperback plus the cover for the e-books and all the artwork I used for the promotional and marketing pieces. They can be found, if, if anybody's interested, at reflexgraphics.com, but they don't spell graphics the normal way. It is R-E-F-L-E-X-G-R-A-P-H-I-X.com. Then, at the same time, while all this is going on, you'll need to purchase an, I, an ISBN code from Boker.com, B-O-W-K-E-R.com, for the back of your book. That number is included in the barcode found on every product that's sold in the world, as well as in various, as, as well as in various references to the book. If you have a hardcover and paperback, 
a different ISBN is required for each. Nowadays, who doesn't want their book to be an e-book? The number of e-book sales varies from genre to genre, but the point is, the number is high and getting higher every day. While you can use platforms like Kindle Direct and Smashwords, the result isn't the same as using a professional for format. There are two main formats, uh, uh, Mobi or .mobi, actually, for Kindles, and EPUB for all the others, which is Nook and iPad, and I believe Kobo even uses them, too, if they don't yeah, use Yeah, I think they do, too. Um, I'm going to jump in here and recommend a great formatter. I never recommend anybody that I haven't used myself, and uh, this would be for the digital formats. I've used a gentleman named Ted Risk, R-I-S-K, at delasterdesign.com. That's D like dog, E-L-L-A-S like Sam, T-E-R, design.com. And I've used Ted for several projects. He's quick and he's reasonable, and I'll tell you, his work is first class. So if an author isn't using a packaging company or they don't have a formatter they're already familiar with, I'd highly recommend Ted. Well, I'll tell you that your, your listeners are certainly getting an education, and hopefully they're writing all, the, all this down. I was fortunate to find Genius Book Services, which can be found simply by going to GeniusBookServices.com. They put the boss in all ebook formats, plus formatted the manuscript to be print ready when it was time to give it to the printer. They also worked with the graphic artist uh, uh, regarding the formatting of the covers. Uh, without Genius Book Services, the professional look and quality of my book in every version never would have happened. Now, finding a quality printer was another adventure, as I had certain personal criteria I wanted met. First of all, I wanted my book printed in America. There are a lot of second-party companies that will price your job and promise you anything, but once you sign the contract and give them your check, your books will be printed in Canada, Mexico, or Asia. Most of your money will pay for shoddy work and shipping. I looked for a company I could feel comfortable with, and for a sales rep I, a sales rep I could relate to and work with. I let them know from the get-go that I was very new at this and was doing it myself. I found Bang Printing, B-A-N-G, Bang Printing, out of Valencia, California. I went to their printing facility and was given the tour, which included a library of the books they've printed. They proved to me that my book would turn out just like the hundreds of bestsellers already on their shelves. And every step of the way, I was shown proofs that were of the highest quality. I can't recommend their services high enough. They certainly provided a better quality product, and their prices beat any on-demand printing service. On top of that, my book has 12 glossy pages of pictures. There's no other my book that looks better than The Boss simply because of Bang Printing's detailed work. You see, if a writer truly wants to self-publish their, self their story the, and provide the reader with the best and most professional product, these are the things that need to be done and paid for. Their website, of course, is bangprinting.com. Okay, 
So you've had your book edited to where you think it's ready to be printed, and you've worked with your book formatter on the e-versions and print versions, which means you have to have your copyright and ISBN codes and all other information required uh, for one of the opening pages. Plus, you have your artwork completed to your satisfaction, and it's been formatted correctly, so give it to the printing company. When ordering a run of printed books, you now have about six to eight weeks before they're delivered to you. Now you've got to get your e-books uploaded to Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iTunes, uh, Kobo.com, Goodreads, and countless other venues that will sell your work. At the same time, you need to contact independent bookstores where they will sell your book and hopefully book you for a reading. It's hard to promote a book to a store without having something to show them. That's where your salesmanship comes in. But if all else fails, you can send them a copy as soon as your books arrive. It's from this point forward that you'll spend countless hours contacting more and more bookstores and libraries to set up readings and to get your book on their shelves. Just remember, though, major chains like Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and others around the country want to deal with you. They deal solely with a small number of wholesalers and distributors, which means, which means dealing with their rules and their percentages. But if you want to play their game and put your books on their shelves, you have no option. As you can see, self-publishing a book and promoting it to where it's profitable is more than a full-time job with an amazing uh, investment of time and money. If the writer is doing it solely as a vanity project to tell their friends and family they've written a book, doing it this way is not for them. Well, that's totally true. Hey, can I ask somebody a question? Can I ask you all a question? Is somebody shredding their manuscript that they hated what they wrote today? It sounds like someone is shredding paper in the background. Hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm reading off the computer here. No, but I know a lot of people that shred their manuscript after they've read it, and it doesn't read the way they hoped it would. Well, I hope you edit this out. That's what it sounded like. I thought one of you guys had a bad writing day, and you hated what you wrote. <laughs> I've been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I, uh, it's, maybe it's just on my end. I, I hear, like, shredding paper in the background. Um, no. That's our sound. That's our special effects. You see, we are one of those shows. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so, uh, boy, Eric, I hope you edit all that out. Uh, well, I don't know. It was. It was. It was. It seemed that shredding sound was under a lot of what you were talking about. But oh, really? again, maybe. Maybe it's just on my end that I'm hearing it. Okay, well, moving forward, when you put together your marketing plan, what was the very first thing that you did? Uh, if you go the offset printing route, once the books are delivered to the writer, who is now a self-publisher, they must then become a warehouse manager, a distributor, and an accountant. At the same time, the writer also has to become a promoter, a publicist, a public speaker, 
and a personality. Radio and TV shows need to be scheduled. Newspapers, magazines, and literary websites need to be contacted. Reviews and interviews are essential. Setting up a website and a Facebook page for the book are now essential, not to mention maintaining them and keeping them current. From the, from the time I decided to self-publish The Boss Always Sits in the Back to the time I was ready to start shipping out books to the several hundred advanced sales I had from the website, the bookstores I had already made deals with and the comp copies to the reviewers, the TV producers and such, it took about five months. And that's when the real work of selling the books started. About two to three months before the books were printed, I booked a tour uh, where I knew my book would sell best and I'd consistently be able to draw the best crowds. Since I was living in L.A. when the book was released, I had a pre-release reading at where else? At Giovanni's, a well-known Italian restaurant in Woodland Hills. It was standing room only at over 100 people and I sold 136 copies on the spot. I did this because the bigger independent bookstores in Hollywood and Pasadena uh, attempted to extort money from... Because, uh, I, let, me, let me rephrase that. I did this because the bigger in, and independent stores in Hollywood and Pasadena, uh, they, they would try to extort money from self-publishers, a uh, feeling that we were simply out to promote our vanity projects and willing to give up a larger percentage of each book, plus have us pay the store for the privilege of having a reading there. By doing that, they lost out on a large number of sales and customers. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt you for a minute, John. I had that experience, too, where and it wasn't even self-published. It was for a small publisher, and I talked to probably the same stores you're referencing, and they wanted a few hundred dollars just for you to be able to come into the store. And I had was the same in experience in Phoenix. Excuse me? Was it in Los Angeles and Pasadena? Yep. It was, it was uh, yeah, I don't mind saying it. Uh, it. It's Book Soup and Vromans. They're both owned yes, by those the, are the and, and they're owned by the same person, same company. And, uh, yes, they they wanted, uh, and, I mean, it, it was horrific, the deal that they wanted me to uh, to agree to. They wanted something like 200 or $250, me to pay them. Um, uh, they literally wanted me to pay a $25 unboxing fee to have their person open the box of books and put it on a shelf. And um, just trying to think, oh, and uh, again, and it would not be a night of myself. I would have to share the night with anywhere from a total of three to five other authors, not of the same genre. Yeah, well, uh, I I thought it was, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I thought it was a good point to bring up. We don't have a lot of time to discuss it, but uh, for those listening who haven't been through this, haven't danced the dance, there are a lot of things that as a self-publisher you have to be careful about because there are many, many people standing there with their hand out and they're just overly happy to take your money. 
Absolutely. I called up I called up the booking rep at the Romans and I told them that I knew some mob guys in New Jersey who were envious of the way that these bookstores <laughs> were extorting. And and uh they had they had I, I believe the vice president of the company called me back and and uh said that he, he wanted an apology for calling them uh, extortionists, and I told him, uh, in no way was that ever going to happen. And that no, you said you, John. I'm sure you probably said something like, "Hey, wait a minute, I'm a Jersey guy. You don't talk to me like that." Anyway, we better get back on track here. We're going to run out of time. The um, things I did say to him, I uh, I certainly wouldn't say on this on your show. But anyway, uh, okay, <laughs> so, uh, we'd but, get bleeped. <laughs> hey, <laughs> But uh, so, uh, so but once the the book was officially released, I went back to New Jersey, where the characters in the book are from, and where most of the second half of the action takes place, and where I was born and raised and spent 46 years of my life. Uh, thanks to the advanced publicity I did with local newspapers and radio and TV stations, along with Facebook and all the bookstores and libraries that couldn't wait to have me. Uh, do readings and, and appearances. From there, I did a tour of the east and west coasts of Florida, uh, another great bastion of mob genre fans, which was great for a book like The Boss. And again, with advanced publicity, bookstores, libraries, and the media ate it up. Yeah, I'm sure they did. You know, off the top of your head, or more accurately, the history of your bank account, uh, can you put a dollar amount on what it costs to independently publish, print, and promote your book? I know you had you chose to have that book printed offset. So right. if you could, could you also include how many copies you had printed? Because I think these are all things that people have to discuss, uh, you know, consider because everybody has a different budget. Right, exactly. And and again, if you're not going to do it to the highest quality. You're only you're only wasting your time and money. But between copywriting the book, getting the ISBN codes, uh, the paying for the artwork, the ebook formatting, the fee for a website, and the cost of having someone make it work and look great, uh, the printing. I had uh, personally, I had printed a thousand hardcover copies and a thousand paperback copies. Uh, I even contracted a publicist for three months. Uh, which uh, I probably didn't really need to do. Uh, I purchased some new clothes for the tour because, you know, if you're going to go out there and you're going to be on TV and you're going to be standing up in front of anywhere from 60 to 120 people every night at a reading, you got to look like you're the star. Uh, the cost of airfares, shipping copies of the book, hotels, gas, car rentals, food while you're on the road, there's no way to put a, a cost on the hours that you'll put in, but I'd say the figure is probably somewhere between fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, and that was all within the first year. Boy, further to that, um, you know, a lot of authors don't have that kind of resources to dedicate to a book, so. I've got to ask you, what's your opinion of authors using services like CreateSpace for print-on-demand and distribution instead of physically having a run printed? Uh, assuming you have no pictures that require glossy p pages, 
Plus, if you don't have a place to store your inventory uh, and you want to make less per copy, then go with a print-on-demand situation. Uh, I know some authors who have no trouble using them because their needs fit the previously mentioned criteria. Personally, I like having more control over the finished product. But uh, but absolutely, if if you don't have the money to lay out for printing, if you don't have the glossy pages, uh, if you don't have uh, uh, a basement or a garage uh, or, or uh, someplace where you can uh, uh, stock two pallets of, of books, then that would be the way to go. Yeah, actually, you know, I've used a couple of companies for the books that I've self-published. I, I mentioned on previous broadcasts that I'm a hybrid author. I'm both traditionally and self-published, and there are a lot of reasons that various of my books are self-published now. In fact, I might even wind up going completely self-published. But um, I've used Lightning Source and CreateSpace. I don't have glossy pages, and I'm really hand-on when approving proofs. And, you know, that's a, that's an important part of it. You talk about the quality, but if you, even if you have the printed books and stuff, if you're not diligent in proofing the book, there are just so many things that slide by. I don't know how those buggers get in there, because every time you think you've got it all caught, you find something else. And... Mm. Um, I know I, on several of my books, I've gone through multiple uh, proofs, and you think you've caught everything, and all of a sudden, God darn it, if one doesn't sneak in. But, oh. you know, the thing is, I, I have received the quality that does not look self-published. People are always surprised to know that my books are self-published, and, of course, I don't, you know, emphasize the fact that they're print-on-demand, but... For me, with several books in publication, I've I've now got 14 books, um, and the fact is that they handle the distribution, and that's a real plus for me. Uh, and in that regard, for me personally, it actually is worth m making less money per book because mm -hmm. I am relieved of the responsibility for ma uh, trying to manage the distribution on 14 books. So I think a person has to decide which route is the best for their time and their pocketbook, but still bear in mind that the quality has to and can be there. And by the way, I found CreateSpace a lot easier to deal with than Lightning Source. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, that's, that was my experience too recently. But let's get deeper into the nitty-gritty. You've been very successful in promoting your book, John. If you had to boil it down let's say, five must-do tips for authors, and this will be our lead line for the radio show, five must-do <laughs> tips for authors. Whether they're self-published or not, in your opinion, what are the things authors need to do to get the most bang for their buck? Well, Eric, um, in my opinion, I'd say these are the essential things. One, if you want your book to get the respect equal to those selling on the shelves, don't skimp. Make it the best it can be, from having it professionally edited, having eye-catching artwork, right down to the quality of paper your story is printed on, simply so the reader feels they've made a good investment in buying your book. Number two, 
Listen to the advice of others that have done what you want to do. Number three, there are countless ways to achieve the same goal. What works for one person may not work for the next, so use your talents and skills to set you and your book apart. Four, let's see, dedicate your life toward making the book as visible to the masses as possible. I thought I was only going to be involved with my book for six months, eight months, ten months. A couple of days ago was the third anniversary of my book. <laughs> Welcome to the crowd. <laughs> and I'm still doing it. And and last, the fifth one, don't take the advice of your close friends or family. They love you. They're going to tell you whatever you do is fantastic. Take criticism well and make sure those who don't know you like your story before investing your time and money into it. If the author doesn't have these skills and abilities, they may need to allocate an additional budget to hire people to help them. And I think that's key, and, and knowing what you excel at and knowing where your needs are, are are part of that business evaluation you make when you decide that you're going to become a writer because even traditionally published writers encounter a lot of those same expenses you talked about, John, travel, clothes, hotels. I mean, just because you're with Penguin or St. Martin's or something like that, they lots of times they want you to do a book tour but they're only putting up fifty percent of the expenses, and that's that. that's for that that's that's for successful authors. Right. Okay. So let's 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 get into the nitty gritty. Let's really dive in here. Let's talk a little more numbers because I think that's something that that uh, our read our listeners could really benefit from. You mentioned professional editing, and and this is a big bugaboo of mine. I really agree with you. What do you think is a reasonable cost range to to have, let's say, a 90,000-word manuscript edited? Hmm, That's an interesting question, and I could tell you that um, based on on my – as Morgan mentioned earlier, I I have uh, friends in the entertainment and literary field and and stuff. Of course, doing it, I wanted – wanted the best I could get, but of course if I could, and I know I said don't skimp, but if if you have somebody who is a professional editor and they owe you a couple of favors, call in your favors. And in my case, that's what I did. Um, I, I have a friend who worked at Random House, and I made sure that she read the book and checked it over for every typo, should I should should it have been a comma and not a semicolon and all of that? And then I had two other English lit teachers, uh, college English lit professors, that I also gave the manuscript to because I wasn't you know I wasn't looking for anyone to tell me to change my story. I knew what my story needed to be. I knew my arcs were all hitting the right places and so on and so forth but I just needed to make sure that what was going to go to the printer was perfect. So it really was put into the hands of three different people 
Um, and and that's how I and they were all professional editors, and uh, and that's how I did it. Now a ninety thousand word manuscript. I've also been asked to edit things for various people, and realistically, ninety thousand words would probably cost between two thousand to three thousand dollars. And that's probably yeah. right in the ballpark, John. You know, another yeah. thing people can do is they can look online for the recommended guidelines for exactly. editing fiction and for editing nonfiction and go to a couple of different websites and then do a consensus of opinion on what they're saying. And somewhere in the middle will probably be your right answer. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think people should pre- should prepare, just like any business venture, there are upfront costs if you want to do it right. So, um, all right, we we talked about editing. What about what about a reasonable cost range to have a cover and back cover and spine artwork put together? Not so much on the, <clears throat> the offset printing that you did with the hard copy because I think that's a little bit um, that's that's a little specialized because you have those glossy pages. But just uh, the basic well, cover. The, the covers, the you know, the covers because I I had like I said I had it in paperback and uh, paperback and hardcover and then of course you know with the hardcover it's the dust jacket with the inside flaps right. and then also the ebook uh, version which is just the front cover anyway, um, um, uh, you know so so this course would vary because. Not everybody's going to do a paperback and a hardcover. Uh, and some right. people, if they do a hardcover, it's uh, the artwork literally is on the cover and, uh, you know, on the cover itself and not a dust jacket. So these prices, uh, and then I know a lot of people, I was not one of them, I believe, uh, who drive artists insane. You know, they give an idea, or the artist comes up with an idea, and then the person who wrote the book uh, all of a sudden now is uh, the art director, and they want to make it. So, you know, you're, you're, you have to remember that it is, it is the artwork on the cover of the book that is going to make it's the first It's the first line of purchase. It is, it is what the person will pick up because your cover looks cool. Simple as that. Right. You know, there's an. Yeah, I was just going to say there's another consideration. Say that. I'm talking over everybody. That's my bugaboo. Okay, what were you saying, Morgan? (laughs) But there is an important consideration in today's um, online market, and even if it is a print book, a lot of people are going to find it online. So one of the big considerations with a cover is that when it gets reduced to thumbnail size, it still jumps off the page and it's readable. And there are so many covers that you will see on sites like Amazon where they might have looked great full size and you get them down into the thumbnail and you can hardly read them or they're muddy looking or you can't see what the title is. And that's, that's a really important consideration, regardless of what price you pay exactly. for it, whether it's $100 or $1,000. That cover artist has to know that that cover is your sales item. 
Absolutely. And uh, I, I would say uh, my cost, and again, I, like I said, is a hardcover and paperback and stuff, it came to just under about $2,000. Wow. Well, what's your opinion about allocating money um, and spending money on entering your book or your manuscript into contests and getting reviews, for example, a Kirkus review in advance? And if so, if so, should all that be done up front, do you think? Or can it kind of be spread out over the six well, months or a year? Well, the logical thing to do would to, to get it to them prior, if you can. Uh you know, I also understand now. I, I didn't go through that. Uh, I sort of let the book run by itself because, uh, like I said, you know, going going back to New Jersey, I knew uh, based on what the book was about. I knew that the media in New Jersey uh, and in the New York metropolitan area was going to eat it up. Uh, uh, so if you submit it to these other uh, review organizations, what happens? Because they post their reviews. What happens if they give you a bad review? And you right. still pay them a couple of hundred dollars. Pay them a couple right. of hundred dollars, and now it's out there. I, uh, you know, I mean. Uh, I, I let the book run for itself. Uh, the, the reviews on Amazon are, are all, you know, I got like a five-star average. Uh, the reviews on Barnes & Noble, I got a five-star average. I let the people do it. And and then, of course, uh, the news, you know, the various news, uh, literary uh, magazines and stuff that got there that were willing to, to uh, take it on. Uh, and read it, all gave it, you know, wonderful reviews. I was very fortunate in in that. So, uh, but there are people who believe that that they do need to uh, get these con- get into these contests or get uh, uh, paid for their reviews and then hope for the best that the review is good. Well, I you know I will say one thing about contests is that. They do give a book credibility if they're a credible contest. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, if it's if it's um, Joe Schmo's contest for uh, floppy covered books, it's not going to do a lot. But like my first book that was published, A Corpse in the Soup, was named Best Mystery Audio Book by USA Book News, and that was a contest, and that was prestigious, and we put it on the cover, and it paid. But like everything else, you need to be discriminating in where you're putting your money out. If you're going to put it somewhere, check and see what kind of results other people who have used it are having. Check their books on Amazon. See what their ranking is. You know, see if people are saying negative things about some of these contests. And we're going to need to speed it up, guys, because we're starting to yeah, run out of time. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I got. I have just one more question, but it's a biggie. Mark, marketing is like quantum physics to most authors, and more and more PR and ad agency com- companies they know this, and they've. I've seen it. I'm the president of the of a local um, writers group here, a writers organization here in Las Vegas. I've seen this firsthand and heard many authors say it. PR and ad agency com- companies are coming at them, and and they're marketing to aspiring authors. So if an author is shy, God forbid, 
or prefers to hide in his or her room in front of their computer screen, banging out, you know, their next sequel on their keyboard instead of getting out and, you know, meeting the masses. What, in your opinion, should they expect to pay someone else to do uh, their I social media? You, I can give you a good number on that. When I was in L.A., when I, when I was in L.A., I, uh, um, I, and was planning to come back east and, and wanted to get the book out and so on and so forth. Uh, in my budgeting, I, I contacted a PR company. And uh, I was sold, a, you know, and, and I'm usually pretty good on this. I was sold a bill of goods, and I was told uh, things were going to be done. And all I could tell you is this. I paid $3,300 for, I believe, six weeks worth of work. And they wanted, like, probably 4000 or 3500 and I got them down to $3,300. Plus, I had to pay for all the postage for all the books that they wanted to send out to the TV shows and the radio shows that they were going to get me on. And for $3,300, I will tell you this. What I got for that was an outstanding press release and one radio show. That's wow. It. That's it. That's all they were able to get me. The problem is, you know, my I went into I went into it with them saying Oh well, you th- you know you're going to help me sell my book. Oh, absolutely, your book's great. We're going to do this and that and the other thing. Okay, great. Uh, what kind of guarantee can you give me? Oh, we can't give you a guarantee. I says, well, how about based on what you're going to do for me, I pay you uh, for every book that that you sell through what you're going to do, because thirty three hundred dollars literally came to. A dollar fifty-five for every book that I was having printed. So that meant that whether these people did something for me or not, a dollar fifty-five of every book that I had printed was going to go to paying this company, which of course wanted to be paid up front. It was it was um, it was a waste of my money, though. You know, I, I you know I probably could have had a great uh, press release printed uh, or or designed for probably five hundred bucks. Uh, I, I uh, you're, you're absolutely right. These PR companies are are looking to dive on people who don't have the ability to do it all themselves. And believe me, when I saw what little this company had done. And uh, and how easy it was once I got out there to promote my own book. You know, I I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, on on a couple of radio shows now, I have been dubbed the king of self-promotion because of what I learned three years or three years and three months or so ago on on uh, going out there. And getting and selling your book. You know what I call that, John? I call it learning in the school of hard knocks. 
go. There you and go. We're really getting pretty close to the end of the show. And um, I think that the discussion we've had has been really informative, you know, because whether you're newly published or you've been published for a long time, there are still all those things to watch out for and all the things that are things that really work. And I think we've had a great discussion on it. But one of the things I'd like to add, and of course I managed to slide this into almost every program, uh, whatever you do, make sure it's professional quality. Do not put out a product with typos or what I call a loving hands at home cover or poor editing. And that goes for your marketing tools, too. And I've posted this all over the web. I Every time I post this on Twitter or on Facebook, people are retweeting it and reposting it because your marketing tools present your book. And if you don't present it in the best possible way in the materials, how good could the book be? Exactly. 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 You wouldn't buy a car that didn't, you know, that didn't look like it was made as well as every other car on the market. So don't don't make your book look like a piece of garbage. I couldn't agree with you more, Morgan. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot. Some of those books really have good content, but the presentation makes you feel like it's a second-rate or third-rate product. And, you know, you don't even get into it because you're put off by uh, one one woman who used to be um, the CEO of Stevens Press when it was in business. She told me the thing that will turn her off the quickest is if she picks up a paperback book and there are typos on the back cover. She said, if I see typos on the back cover, how good can the book be? Exactly. Yeah, so we've... Now we're all quiet because we're watching the clock tick. Okay. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're running out of time here. Um, John, tell the people where they can buy The Boss Always Sits in the Back. And also, okay, sure, where they can thank you. Uh, as crazy as it may sound, uh, as the first edition run uh, was selling out, I took the printed versions off the Internet market, off of Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, suddenly... The prices for used copies of the paperback went from $13. Now they're going for up to $75. And and uh, and uh, and and um, and the hardcovers were actually going for up to $250. Uh, I, I know that there's one uh, on Amazon right now. It's in perfect. They say it's in perfect condition and that it's a signed copy, and they're selling it for over $250. But there's still a few hardcovers left, and I'll happily get signed copies to your listeners, not for $75, not for $250, but for the original $22 a copy with $5.50 for shipping. All they have to do is write to me at John, J-O-N, there's no H. John, J-O-N, at the boss always sits in the com, and let me know they heard about the boss on your show, and I'll reply to them with the link so they can, uh, so they can have their uh, own copies in their hot little hands within a week. Now, of course, they can also get e-books by going to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or iTunes, 
and that's available for three ninety nine. Well, that's great. You know, thanks so much, John. We, we've gotten so much information, and you're a delight to talk to. And I have to tell you, I really did enjoy reading your book. I mean, it, it's it's one of these things that's a mob story with fun, and um, the experience must have been unbelievable. It was the greatest time of my life, As I, and I, I'm sure I, I, I know I even said it in the book. It was what what I did with those guys in Vegas, uh, and and literally, I was just a young kid, and my cousin, my godfather, was the guy who was running it all. Uh, I was just happy to be there, and uh, even now, after many of those guys are gone, uh, it was. It was one of the best. It, it, it allowed me to have one of the most exciting, adventurous, and memorable times any 22- to 25-year-old kid could have. Cool. That's well, great. thanks so much for joining us, John. Um, just for our listeners, our next show is going to be on May 27th when Benny Griffin is going to join, be back with us. The topic is going to be characters' professions relative to your story. Yeah, and before we say goodnight to everybody, I'm going to say that in that show, you might be surprised at some of the things that can be used to use the profession as a vehicle, things that are unexpected. So tune in to the next show, and good night and God bless. Okay, good night, everybody. Take it easy.
Uh-oh.